Welcome. Today I want to bring you a conversation I had with a very interesting and thoughtful friend and supporter of the show, Hugo. This interview was originally intended to be used in the A Leap of Faith episode. However, once we began speaking about Hugo's first impressions of Slovakia from 1994, when he first arrived, it felt as if we were speaking about a different country. Certainly most cultural elements have remained mostly unchanged, but his experiences seem poles apart from those of the foreigners who had arrived in the past decade. So I thought I would present to you the interview in full to allow you to follow Hugo down memory lane to a Slovakia that most of us have only read about. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Now I bring you Hugo. I'm uh, British. Uh, I came to Slovakia back in the summer of 1994, so nearly 30 years ago. And it's been fascinating being invited onto this particular uh, podcast because it's given me the opportunity to reflect on the, the world as I saw it, or I, I encountered it at that time back in the mid 90s, which was only what, four years after the uh, collapse of the, the, the Iron Curtain and barely 18 months after the separation, the velvet divorce between the Czech Republic and Slovakia, the Slovak Republic. And so the, the, my comments at the moment will be really focused on what it was for a single, 34-year-old chartered accountant who'd been to university, who'd studied abroad in France, who spoke pretty good French, who grew up in Germany, the, the, uh, the son of a British army officer serving in the NATO forces, who first came across or first heard of the whole notion of Czechoslovakia as it was back then, in uh, when he was nine years old, hearing on the invasion of Czechoslovakia following the Prague Spring. So that was the person I was when I came to Slovakia in 1994. And I should say that the Slovakia of 1994, I was thinking about it just right now because I've got quite, I've got quite a lot of books that I've collected over the years. And the Slovakia of 1994, I was struck by the fact, literally in the last few hours, had more in common with the Slovakia, or the Czechoslovakia as it was, or Czechoslovensko as it was, pre-war, World War II, the, the pictures of Karole, the black and white pictures of Karole and others, who took photographs pre-war and pictures that I have in books that I was, I've picked up over the years that were demonstrating the transformation of socialism, which, which were mostly printed in the late 50s, early 60s. So that those two put together were essentially the Slovakia that I encountered, obviously post the, uh, the socialist, well, the, the collapse of the of the of, of the wall, but you could I, I when I look at it and I think back at it now I can see more connection 
with that Slovakia than today's Slovakia is to the Slovakia of 1994. I've said that I talked about the uh, 68 and the impact it had upon on me because it meant that basically uh, my father jumped off in his tanks for three weeks and my mother told us that we needed to get prepared to go into the car and go back. And then she announced that if she was going to be raped by Russians, she was not, she didn't want to be raped in a ditch. She was going to be raped in our own, in her own bed. And myself and my brother then decided we went off in the woods and started building uh, a, a fort to, because we were going to, you know, fight against the Russians with our bows and arrows. No. So, but the answer to the question is no, not at all. I mean, there was a, some feeling, I suppose, of the um, involvement of Czechoslovaks and indeed Poles in supporting the United Kingdom during the Second World War and fighting against Nazi Germany, but no knowledge of the history. And the only reference I do remember having to Slovakia was uh, the first of two books by a guy called Patrick Lee Fermer. I don't know if you know who Patrick Lee Fermer was, but he was a young guy who, aged 19 or so, in 1933, decided that he was going to walk basically from Calais to Constantinople to walk. And in the late 70s, he found his old papers, yeah? And he published uh, two books. Um, one was called Between the Woods and the Water, and that's the Viennese Woods and the, the, the Black Sea. And the other one was, I've forgotten what it's called, doesn't matter. But anyway, the last chapter of that book was how he came into Bratislava, or in those times it was basically called Pressburg and Pojon. And it, was and it talked for a whole chapter about how it was this incredibly multicultural place Jew, Yiddish Jews, because it had the la largest Jewish school uh, in, um, in Central Europe, um, Hungarians, Germans, and relatively few Slovaks. So and one had that as a historical pointer, but literally that was, uh, you know, 20 pages. The only other thing I have, and this will make you laugh, is uh, knowing I was going to come out here, and by the way, I only had five days notice between being asked for an interview, having the interview and basically flying out. Now I went I and I was living and working in London at the time. So I went to one of the major London bookshops and bought the um, second edition printed in 1991, Lonely Planet Guide for Central Europe. This was a massive tome, all 800 pages, but within that, only 30 pages was devoted to Slovakia. And of that, 10 was devoted to Bratislava. And if you can imagine this, you know, how to find the rain station, the railway station, et cetera, et cetera. So there was basically nothing. And of course, there wasn't the internet. Uh, you know, mobile phones didn't exist. So it just, I, when I was thinking, you know, why did I do it? Well, it just seemed like a curious thing to do. Why not? You know, it was open. Why not go and look as opposed to, uh, you know, beat one's way off to uh, the Far East or something? You know, this was on the doorstep. And 
indeed, even to this day, I'd still say of anybody, come here, it's on your doorstep. Find somewhere different that's on your doorstep that is a little bit off the beaten track. But, you know, what with Ukraine and things, I think, honestly speaking, the whole world is now realizing that Europe runs from, you know, the Atlantic to, well, certainly at least the Russian border, if not a little bit beyond. Right. So you're in Bratislava in (laughs) in 1994. Um, So can you describe the the most striking cultural differences between your home and in Slovakia of 1994? Well, yeah, and maybe I should say that, and today it might seem absurd, but uh, how did I get to Slovakia? Well, I was told, fly to Vienna and we'll send somebody to Vienna to pick you up. Now, I mean, all I really knew of Vienna, to be honest, was, you know, the third man and Harry Limes, etc. But um, you know, just to put it into context, back in those times, I got picked up by a guy in a beaten up car who looked like actually what he turned out to be in a former STB agent, um, uh, driving a very beaten up secondhand old Peugeot with a totally split screen, smoking like a chimney, smelling like sweat, no English whatsoever. And he then proceeded to drive me across what I took to be basically pretty much farm trails through a white parched, dry landscape across cornfields, whatever. And what I now realize was, of course, I was tracking basically the Danube mm-hmm. through these no, you know, nobody had visited villages. Finally, one came to a small town, you know, and then literally bursting out of the woods. So essentially what I would try to say is going to the end, end of the world. And of course, in those, uh, you know, from 1956 onwards, that was the end of the world. There was totally, the Austrian side was totally agrarian. And then literally coming out of the, out of the woods at Wolfstahl and seeing Bratislava for the first time this huge, great big white wall of, as it turned out to be Panalaki, the broken castle on the hill and thinking like, wow, you know, we've just been through nowhere land. I mean, I was half convinced the guy was gonna drive off into the woods and slip my throat, you know, maybe I'd got the wrong person, you know, that I'd fallen for the oldest trick in the world. But um, so arriving into Bratislava, I mean, what struck me again, and this is to put it into context, there was a, as one came out of, by Wolfstyle, the, as it were, old road turned right. And there was a very clearly new road that went along a sort of like a causeway for about two kilometers, at which point there was a porter cabin, a, a container, which was the Austrian border post and Austrian soldiers there just sort of waving. And then one came to the Iron Curtain. It was like out of a Second World War escape film, the border post. 
with the with the with the gate with the gate down. They lifted the gate for every car that went through. Looked at your passport. You know, open the open the boot. Of course, the STB agent driver just sort of waved casually at them. But that was when I first you really got a sense of wow, one is crossing over a border that now just doesn't exist. You wouldn't, you, you, you drive across it seamlessly. I mean, okay, when we had COVID, it sort of got resurrected, but not at that particular border crossing because there was no motorway between Vienna and Bratislava. That was only built in the thousands. So arriving into Bratislava, the first thing one struck was you know, the castle on the hill and what was obviously a newer part, which is, you know, became, or I re came to recognize as Petrojalka, which, you know, brooding, oppressive, but struck, what struck me was, you know, it was like dusty, unkept. Petrojalka was unfinished. Like the panelaks were there, the roads were there, but, they hadn't bothered to plant trees or cut the grass. It was just like a bomb heap everywhere. And to, in that respect, it hasn't really changed. I'd say in the last four or five years, uh, the mayors of Bratislava begun to do something. And you sort of say, well, it, this would cost nothing. So already, in terms of a mentality, you could see there was a change. There was, I dare say, no civic sense of pride which is curious because Slovaks are very, very proud and very high pride in my experience. They like things to be kept very clean. They're meticulous on Poriadok, but anything that was common, well, that's not my job. So downtown Bratislava was fascinating as well because it was devoid of cars largely devoid of people. It was hot. I have to say as an English person, I was shocked how hot it was. I, 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 I guess I hadn't appreciated the Central European climate meant cold in the winter. I got that bit, yeah? But I didn't realize it was hot mm. in the summer. So it was in the you know, early 30s. The car had no air con, obviously. I was taken to um, the office where I was, because I worked for an accounting firm, um, that was essentially a converted house or had been recently converted, yeah. Um, no air conditioning in there either. And the, all the paint within the office was old distemper paint. In other words, if you brushed against the wall, you got <laughs> basically wiped down your suit right. and you'd, uh, you'd, this is when one felt like this is a like a replay in time to some pre-world war ii movie of uh, um, you know somewhere like middle middle germany or someplace yeah mm -hmm. uh, i mean they evidently good people yeah but Whatever they may have thought, or whatever we may, whatever they may have thought, it was evident that socialism hadn't delivered the same degree of material wealth and upkeep, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, 
as the Western world. I mean, that was, you know, like that hit one like a ton of bricks. Socialism hadn't worked. It may have worked in 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 other ways. I mean, I actually advocate that it did probably a great job in terms of a broader transformation, in terms of educating people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of creating wealth, no, an absolute nullity. Um, so those were my first impressions of Bratislava. And then beyond Bratislava, it began to be sort of the countryside. But in those times, at least, Slovakia and Bratislava was tremendously parochial. I mean, going to Racha was like a big trip, although it was actually on the, on, on the same, uh, on the trolleybus line. And going to Pezinok was like, and once you were beyond the Senate, I mean, you, that was darkest, darkest Peru land. So there was this real sense of people didn't travel very much, except at weekends they went home to their fam, uh, to their parents' place and worked in the garden and did whatever the thing. So uh, I don't think uh, in those times there was much in the way of change, but that's largely because people were also incredibly poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean. Back in the day, the girls, I know that the, the interns or the, the, in the firm I worked for, we had, um, was only 40 staff. Nine of them were foreigners, a smattering, an Aust- a couple of Australians, a few of South Africans, a couple of Americans, a Canadian, and a Brit led by an American. And then we had, you might call the professional bookkeeping staff who were Slovaks, in, but the younger generation, um, they would have been only on 100 euros a month. But they were, that was a good wage back then. So, so, you know, they had no money. I mean, they had aspirations. And that's why they joined the firm that I joined in, because they aspired to something more. And... The fascinating thing in a way, uh, this is the other thing I do feel, what's really transformed Central Europe is foreign capital, both in, in a monetary sense, but also in an educational sense. The company I work for, the big four firms, they have literally trained up probably less than 10,000, but thousands, probably less than 10,000 people to be professional financial managers, et cetera, et cetera. And those people now 20, 30 years later are all in the top managerial positions within the Slovak uh, business environment. And then they were then joined probably in the the 2000s when privatization came along by the law firms who have done the same thing. So the, I would say self-cultivated, not entrepreneurial, but the self-cultivated professional class have the roots in foreign investors. Um, and and, and, I, and I was, I was part of that. Right, right. Um, well, that's that's uh, very interesting. I, I I need to say. Um, we're counting down about six minutes until this cuts us off, but then we can 
we can reconnect and yeah, you know, yeah, continue the conversation. So I wasn't looking at the watch. Sorry. No, no, no. There's there's no worries. I'm just relax and express yourself. That's exactly what I want. Um, so uh, let's uh, maybe dive into some of the challenges um, when you first arrive. Well, there were many challenges um, at one level. And then at another level, I would say no more than you would have expected. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, every challenge was capable of being overcome. Uh, but you needed to have a facilitator to help you overcome it. Without the facilitator, you would have been sunk. I mean, I used to joke, it, uh, but it was true. I'm not that I'm, I'm probably a little bit overweight these days, but when I came here, I was 93 kilos, yep. After three months, admittedly it was hot, you know, no air con, da da da, so you don't want to eat too much. Um, but I, I lost 10 kilos in three months. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and okay. the first time in my life I became obsessive. I didn't, know, I didn't know I was obsessive about it until I went to Vienna of a, of a sunny weekend in August, my first trip to Vienna. And myself and uh, this American guy, we were sharing a flat together. We, we went and found a Burger King and devoured two sets of burgers and Coca-Cola because we hadn't had protein or sweet drinks for, for, for two months. You know? <laughs> um, so, uh, the ch but the challenge is, yeah, we're over, the challenge ultimately there was language, language. Um, and back in those times, it has to be said, nobody spoke English. Absolutely no one spoke English. Even restaurant menus were in Slovak. If you were lucky, maybe some of them might have been in Germany, but nothing else. So eating out was a challenge and would have been almost impossible if it hadn't been for the fact that there were a few Chinese restaurants and there were three in the whole of Bratislava, there were three pizzeria restaurants, two of which still, still are going strong, La Mama and Pizza Char. Um, so that I think was the biggest you know, challenge. And then, you know, I had my guidebook, which was in English say, but everything had been translated. So if I wanted, to, uh, in fact, I remember trying to take the bus to the top of Koliba, yeah? And it said in the guide, in, in my, my English guidebook, that if you took the 214 bus, it would take you to Koliba. So I, I tracked down where the 214 bus was by, you know, detective work and waited there and waited there and waited there. And then it come, it came along and uh, basically I wanted to get in and the guy wouldn't let me get in. And I understood that it was basically the end of the line because it was on the other side of the street. <laughs> so I'd spent like two and a half hours in the boiling hot 33, 34 degrees sun and still hadn't got up the hill. I mean, I could see it there, but I couldn't get there. But um, 
the facilitation aspect, I mean, undoubtedly, because I was working in a uh, in a, an accounting firm, so there were uh, young people. I was age-wise, I was older than them, but mentality-wise, probably wasn't so far different. And there was uh, uh, an enthusiasm, I think, from that point of view, to meet and talk to foreigners. So um, very fairly rapidly. Um, I would say there was a handful of people who were basically tagging on and willing to show us around, show us where the pubs were in downtown, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Take us to, you know, Vlati Pieski, for example, to go swimming and find one's way. But the truth is that if it hadn't been for those people, that it would have been really, really difficult. At that time, I mean, I guess now, you know, you take out your phone, you type in, you know, you Google map and you type it in, you go and ask and they'll point in the direction. So those sort of barriers have, have changed somewhat. But the language was really difficult, it still is. I mean, the inability to read a street sign, uh, the inability to grasp simple vocabulary, um, I did find really challenging. I mean, I, and I put it in the context, you know, so I said I'd, I'd studied in France, so I was pretty fluent in French. I'd been to countries like Turkey, for example, and found absolutely no difficulty moving around Turkey. In fact, was able to assimilate Turkish words relatively quickly. But in the absence of any book that had explained what basic Slovak was, and even if it did, you couldn't read it so that a Slovak could understand it. I mean, you could get, you could perhaps point, and then they say, "Oh, you mean?" And you said, "Well, I, I didn't get what you said." So, unless they were able to point to, you know, you're asking where is the station, and they read it and say, "Well, okay, you're lost." <laughs> he told you, but you don't understand. Within the Romance languages, we have vowels, and they don't, um, and. Or, or, or they use different letters as vowels. Um, but, you know, things like, uh, I think I've said before, you know, the easy one is pivo. Any, everybody can learn pivo. But even to this day, if I say, you know, daqui, I'm, I'm sure I probably got it wrong. And that's simple, by the way, you know. <laughs> so pivo, dobre, no problem. But then, you know, beyond that gets more problematic, you know, these words like zmrzlinu and petrzalka and, you know, I mean, anybody, they'll just switch off. Um, and, but it may be, I mean, fair, fairness to say, it's, it may not only be exclusively Slavic languages. I mean, I had some friends who, um, used to really struggle with Shrekat Airport. Mm -hmm. they, they, they were from Wales, and they just could not get that. So they just used to call it Shrishwash. Shrishwash. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, by and large, I would say, you know, I never had a problem being able to read a street sign in, um, in Vienna, but obviously in Slovakia, it was a problem. I wonder sometimes, though, whether if one had got, if it was in uh, the, uh, you know, basically the Eastern Slavic countries, one would have had to learn Cyrillic 
and that might have made it somewhat easier to read because before mm. you wouldn't have had to you wouldn't be reading them from from Latinic script. I, I I don't know. I never I never was I never got that far along in terms of reading in Cyrillic because by then I could already articulate in Western Slav as it were. Um, you know, perhaps I mean, it would make it easier. A, a bap, a bap, and a pectopa <laughs> is, is, as you know, a bar and a restaurant. <laughs> uh, um, so, beyond language, what, what else did you find challenging about that uh, first year? The business environment was challenging. Um, what I mean by that is frequently one would ask, what seemed to be a very straightforward, almost a yes or no question, you know, where is the X, whatever that might be, yeah? And for some reason, it wouldn't be forthcoming. You know, suddenly you'd start like dragging through treacle. <laughs> and that would be difficult because you'd be saying to yourself, well, hang on, you know, what's the problem here? You know, what this I've just asked something that is really pretty simple and fundamental. How is it and why is it? Is there a problem? You know, the, you know, is it a problem with the translation? And then usually the person who's translating. Um, oftentimes there might have been problems in the translation, because what I found at the beginning until I sort of once I, I overcame it in the end, because what I found at the beginning is that people would interpret, they wouldn't translate, they would interpret what you asked to palletize it and make it, um, uh, how to say, digestible if, as they thought to whoever you were asking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they were, you were going through an intermediary filter that was somehow sanitizing it. Now, oftentimes that intermediary filter didn't have the degree of technical experience that you had yourself, or indeed the other guy, the other person that you might be trying to communicate with. So you're going through this dumbed down filter and cultural filter, which would often mean you get you get totally sideways and you sort of have to, you know, draw brass and say, okay, well, let's go on to the next thing. And then go back and say, well, come on, guys, what, what's going on here? What's the problem? And that's when you get the, perhaps the translator looking at you like, you know, caught in a rabbit headlights. Well, uh, you know, I, I wasn't quite sure what you meant. And so, and then you'd say, well, well it, that's okay. If, I, if you don't understand what I mean, then why don't you tell me rather than just carry on and make me feel like an idiot and make probably the other guy feel like an idiot as well. I mean, it's, it's we're trying to communicate here. And although I recognize that you're trying to help, you're actually stopping it. This is, so, so you know, basta, enough. You know, we're all in the same fence here. We're trying to share a common understanding and it's totally normal, not necessarily to get it or, or quite understand that is, totally and utterly normal. So I think that was that was uh, problematic um, and still is to a certain degree, but that's 
once one's recognized that, then it becomes not an issue. And in fact, what it then teaches one to do is become much more intuitive about what's going on. Uh, so much so, I mean, I had a good friend of mine, he could, he could be in meetings and he didn't speak a word of the language, but he knew he would say what he, the question, it would be translated, and he would understand what the other side said just by his intuition and his pickup of the body language and da 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 da. And he would then turn, turn to the translator and say, you, you translated that wrong. And the, the translator would say, no, I didn't. He said, no, you did, because what they're saying, and then, you know, he'd say what they're saying. And then the other guy, who probably did understand some language, some would say da or ano in a presne. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think that would have been a, a, a challenge because my culture or where I came from, you know, you asked a question, you got an answer. You didn't have to go through some sort of politicization process of what are they meaning and, you know, how's it, where's the twist, you know. Uh, and if I'm asking a question, why would they, why would, you know, I expect a straight answer, but then what I would find here is, and in this region, is oftentimes they would, they would give a deflection, they would answer, but quite deliberately designed not to tell you what you want, but to buy you off. Mm -hmm. Because why the hell would a foreigner want to know that? Or put another way, why on earth should I tell a foreigner what is really going on? Mm -hmm. And I think that's to remains a challenge. And I, I looking back on it, I never felt like that in France. Um, you know, I always felt one was on the same wave wavelength. There was the, the, uh, perhaps a common culture, yeah. Um, and here I would say to this day, I, I, I do, I find people are not forthcoming as to what is really going on. That's like the truth. The truth, you, if you can't work it out yourself, then I'm not going to tell you. And it's, by the way, it's mm -hmm. your job to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, I'm not your servant. Right. The uh, for me the team aspect of it, of um, you know the, basically my professional upbringing was very very flat uh, structure where everybody was expected to contribute and indeed even the youngest person might be would be almost um, not so much expected but it was open to them putting something in and often every, you know heads would swivel and say that's an excellent idea you know. Great, well done, you know, add a boy. That this is a merit meritocracy. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that was the, the ability to communicate, but in terms of really understanding uh, the intuitive side was something that I struggled with. Mm -hmm. um, I would say the flip side of that though is you know, one's relationships or the interaction with, dare I say, a, a nice girl 
was often because there was less because neither side was particularly comfortable in the language that was being an intermediary it would often be i like you or i don't like you i mean i don't mean in a sexual sense like you know let's oh you know it's a nice day or isn't the weather wonderful smile ha be happy and you know just generally have be happy to to be with each other or within the group yes as opposed to the play acting of you know <laughs> there's always something going on under the surface yeah yeah and and so do you think that um that um that kind of interaction with you uh was amplified because you're a foreigner um or in the, in the, um do you did you feel welcomed or did you feel that there was that obfuscation going on because of who you are as a as a foreigner it's a tough call to say i have to say that i never felt unwelcomed yeah mm -hmm. i never felt hostility uh by by contrast i certainly felt uh that I had experiences like that in places like the Ukraine, for example, yeah, mm. which was much more Sovietized, where you know you could feel a naked, almost a, a naked aggression towards whatever it was, you know. Um, and in Slovakia, I always felt that the as between Slovaks, or at least the people working with me and the the counterpart, there wasn't too much of a game going on unless you were dealing with a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And then it was a full-on game. Mm -hmm. you, 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 you could never, you could, and, and you could never get to, um, as it were, the truth. And even if you would then demonstrate to them that basically they were not telling the truth, like, I don't know, talking about a particular law and said, but no, it doesn't say like that. Look in this clause, it says this and this and this. Ah, well, you don't understand. And you'd say, no, 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 come on. You just told me it doesn't. And here it does. So, you know, why, why the charade? Right. Why the charade? I'm not, with, I'm not here to play games. And if this is what you want to play, then basically let's go, let's, you know, leave it like there. You go fishing, I'll go fishing, because this is a waste of our of our time. And it, be honest about that. If that's what you want to do, I'm I'm okay with it. I'll I'll have to find some other way. Whether I find it or not, I don't know. But playing a game is not something in my culture that I was accustomed to. Mm -hmm. And it got. More, I, I would say that's more mm -hmm. accentuated in the Southern Balkan countries, where they all play in games with each other. They will, they will. Somebody will say something, and the other side will person will then say, "If I understood what you said, yeah," and then they will twist it around, which was totally what the person didn't say. But they're trying to say, "I receive what you said as this." So, you know, there was, that's an endemic part of Southern Balkan, you know, almost this Turkic mix 
Uh, but here, I would say, um, except for when you're dealing with a lawyer, I never really had that. Um, but maybe it's innate within the culture, but accentuated within the legal profession. Right. right. Um, so let's let's talk about um, how you're welcomed by Slovaks uh, when you first arrived. I would say I was welcomed um, very enthusiastically, or I was welcomed very openly by the young. And what I mean by that be basically the under 25s, yeah. Um, because, and I don't, I don't think it was me personally that they were, I mean, they were, I think they were warm and welcoming to the whole fact that the world appeared to be changing and they were embracing that change. And we're looking for um, the enlightenment from that sort of change and possibly even the uh, experience that they might be able to get from that. Like, can I get a secondment to the US for three months if you know somebody or whatever? But um, so the young, uh, that generation were very receptive. I think the ones younger than sort of 20 were like almost mesmerized. Like, who are these Martians? Yeah. In other words, they hadn't gone, they hadn't yet gone through the uh, indoctrination of Slovak universities. You know, this is the book. If you know this book, then you are worthy of calling yourself a, an ingenieur. You have a status in life. You are a citizen. You've graduated, as it were. So they were, so they were much more like, you know, ooh, you know. Um, the ones from, the interesting ones in a way were the ones from about 30 to 40, I would say, who were sort of wary, yeah? They wouldn't be impolite, they would be quite, but they wouldn't be forthcoming, yes? And the older ones were very interesting. You either had ones that were basically dyed in wool socialists, yes, and were just waiting for you to go away. And, you know, you know nothing, uh, you know, <laughs> time is on our side. Before we know it, we'll be back under the wings of Moscow or whatever it may be, on the one hand. And then there were of the other elements, often. I find Jewish actually, or having Jewish origins, of which the very, very small number, who um, were able to connect with a society that was much more open, that saw it the 48, mm -hmm. the 48 year, or the 40 years from 48 to 89 as aberrative, mm -hmm. and were therefore quite forthcoming. Uh, or more forthcoming, uh, and their attitudes to um, the world was quite interesting. I wonder, I well remember a guy who was in his mid-40s, multilingual, I'm Jewish, multilingual, father had come home from Auschwitz, well, no, it might have been Belsen, anyway, come home weighing 38 kilos. Wow. 38 kilos. And this guy was a larger than life character. 
he was not 38 kilos. And I remember one, one time asking him about it. And he said, well, you know, based from my father's experience, whenever we had a meal, we never left anything on the table because there was always this underlying sense that this might be the last meal we'd have together. So eat it and be joyful and grateful for that meal. But I remember him telling me how when the wall came down in 89, he used to, he had a car because he had quite a senior position in whatever he had before. I think he was a finance director of a, you know, company that had subsidiaries all around Slovakia. And um, so he had a car and he would insist to take his two children and his wife and they'd go for little circular trips into Austria through the villages just to see how it was. They had no money, but he wanted to show his children there was another side of the border. The old Slovak joke you've probably heard, you know, the one when father took his son to uh, Devin, yeah? And they're looking across the Danube. You know this joke? No, no. Okay, so father and son looking across Danube at Devin. Son looks up at father and says, Daddy. Dad says, yes. Daddy, do you know what it's like on the other side of the border? On the other side? And the father thinks, God damn, you know, what I, what I say, you know, how, I can't lie. And he thinks for a bit. He says, yes, son, I do. And this little boy says, you know what it's like on the other side? And the father says, I do, son. We're on the other side. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> no, I hadn't heard that one. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to talk to my wife and, and ask her uh, about my own, the, my the own, Slovak. My own wife, whose father, uh, he was a professional musician. Uh, he, yeah. Um, he told me that when he first went to Holland, he came back and said, there are no dead people in the streets. Uh-huh. It's a lie. It's a lie. There are no dead people in the streets. No. because they had all been told that's what it was. And, you know, one of the, almost um, within the canon of socialist beliefs, certainly I, I, that people would express pretty openly when I first came, is in five years, we will be the same standard. We will be as good as, if not better than the Austrians. Mm-hmm. And it's in Bratislava, well, if you can judge by prices, it's certainly already there. There's finally a convergence, but I mean, still, uh, it's not there for everyone. I mean, the cost of living is obviously, uh, you know, if you, if you judge it by cost of living and one thing and another, the, the standard is on the way up. And um, so there has been a huge transformation in that regard. And um, I personally, I mean, always, said to uh, Slovaks and people from Central Europe that basically people here could survive if we, if the economy fell off the cliff because we still most people still remember how to survive. They, 
grow their vegetables, they da, da 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 you know, they know what to do or, or are still doing it, yeah? Right. But people in Western Europe, they, they would be um, anarchy. Mm-hmm. I would say the same is true in America. Oh, yeah. Christ, America, you know, they're crying about gas being whatever it is, five dollars. <laughs> right, half the price of, yeah, <laughs> of the gas <laughs> here. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> I I d- didn't, uh, you know, work a day in the garden until I moved to Slovakia. And that's all I do nowadays. Yeah, and uh, that's the downside of, say, Bratislava. As a as an expatriate, as you, well, it's the downside of living in any urban environment. You you don't get to see this, the the, the passage of the seasons, and mm-hmm. you know one of the beauties of I'd say for me of comparing the UK. I mean, the UK doesn't rain all the time, as you know people believe, but uh, it it is incredibly green. You know, so there is a difference, a seasonality, but here, I mean, the, the difference between, you know, when spring hits, it's it hits like a sledgehammer, and in two weeks, everything is out. You know, it, 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 the late April, May, suddenly from being sterile brown fields to the first white puffs of snow, but they're not there, the, 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 the cherries and mm-hmm. the ring glosses of this world. And then suddenly you've got full summer, and then Six weeks later, they're already harvesting because you're in to you know the, the the dry summer, as it were. So there is a you know that's something that's by being in the garden, as it were, you you get to see those changes. Yes. And in the UK, you don't. I mean, you can pretty much grow green veg, or you can grow green vegetables all year round, but mm-hmm. here you can't. I mean, if you were right, you know, one of the big changes or Big differences, I would say, for me, was the absence of green vegetables. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. to this day, I don't know how you can be a vegetarian in Slovakia. I mean, or if you if you can be, it must be an extremely boring diet. Because I find even Slovak diet pretty damn boring. Yeah. Well, I get creative with my uh, my garden. So. Yeah, but you know, I mean, you can certainly these days you can grow stuff that you couldn't even mm-hmm. didn't even exist so these days you can grow your aubergines yes mm-hmm. but back yes but back in 1994 aubergines didn't exist mm-hmm. even uh you call them zucchini didn't exist mm-hmm. um people here grew uh chick pizza mm-hmm. another fuzzle over Mrukva, everybody grew tons of potatoes. I mean, potato was the thing that everybody grew. And then by hand would remove the uh, mandalinki, the, you know, Colorado <laughs> black beetle, which have to be done by hand because that shows you're a true Slovak. Um, <laughs> and kapusta and paprika, but not, uh, you know, mostly the white paprikas. And then... Herbs, which you know, myran, kopor, and sage, and that's it. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, the, there were no spices, right? Uh, you know, it was salt, pepper, and as I say, myran and sage, yeah, <laughs> and not and then as much fat as you want. 
(laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, the Slovak hamburger was was shocking to me. And I saw there there was no Slovak hamburger. I mean, the uh, the brachovi mas on the bread with the onions, you know. Seagulls or anything like that, which is disgusting. Well, (laughs) no, it's disgusting. Yeah, it really is something. Um, well, so before we run out of time, I just want to know um, about that the general feelings that you have about being a foreigner here. Um, you know, I I wanted to know if you're comfortable, if you've been able to forget that you are a foreigner. No, the uh, I I hope this is not uh, British exceptionalism, but. Uh, but um, no, I know I'm a foreigner, but I'm a foreigner who chooses. This is my country. I I, I emigrated here. I, it wasn't intentional. It was happenstance. Um, but you know, I have three Slovak English children. I'm very very proud of them. Um, so. But I, I, I will, through my own failings, have still never have not mastered the language. But then again, I see my children, uh, who all, by the way, uh, they study Slovak as well. They're not going to. My eldest probably won't do the maturita, but the second one will because she, she's entertaining the idea of possibly being a vet or a doctor, which, and an option is to study in either Slovakia or in the Czech Republic. Um, but no, when I look at them and their friends who are, you know, pure Slovak, they're still studying Slovak language in their eight, at, at 18. And mm-hmm. this is, I said it before, alluded to it before, the only people who can really speak and write Slovak are the lawyers. And what they are speaking and writing, by the way, is archaic. It's mm-hmm. essentially Slovak as codified by Bernal Lakovo or Stur or whatever, whoever it was back in the day. And it, it's not how normal people communicate. And they use that language as a language to mystify and obfuscate and assert a superiority. And I'll never be able to get through that. I mean, the ordinary man in the street or the person in my village, I can happily communicate with. I mean, it may be very, you know, a lexicon of probably a a few hundred nouns and a couple of um, totally mangled uh, uh, tenses, I'm sorry, verbs. And God forbid that, you know, the cases or even the tenses. (laughs) But, you know, we communicate. Um, we're happy, yeah? He wants mm-hmm. to borrow my rubric. I'll say, oh, yeah, you want the rubric. Okay, here you are. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, but I, the funny thing is, I, re- I was thinking about it in this context. When I was 18, after leaving school, I, went, I, wanted to, uh, I wanted to go and do a lot of skiing, and I wanted to learn French, so I had this idea of putting the two together. So I went to uh, uh, Grenoble University, or Grenoble, if you might say it in Americans, uh, university, which is um, famous for the 1968 Olymp- Winter Olympics. So it's in Savoie, surrounded by mountains, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
And uh, after one year, I really seriously entertained the idea of studying in France, living and working in France, because I was already eating, drinking, sleeping, dreaming, as I thought a French person. So much so that when I got on a train going back to the UK, got on a train at, at, at uh, Folkestone or wherever it was, and I'm sitting in a railway carriage and the two people opposite me and I don't understand what they're saying. And after about half an hour, I realized they were speaking in uh, heavily accented, although regional English, but I couldn't understand them. But I've never had that sense in uh, here and I probably never will. But I don't mind that. I don't, it, you know, why do I have to be Slovak to live here? Now Slovensko, why can't other people? And I was thinking about it in, in the context of emigration we're talking about. I mean, you can certainly say from the, since the Second World War, there have been waves of Western Europeans emigrating to Slovakia. You've got the, 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 the British women, for the most part, married Czechs and Slovaks who came and lived here. You've got people like myself. You've got the people from Vietnam and Africa and the Caribbean on scholarships during this period of socialism. You go back earlier times, you've got the Germans who came to the Spiech and the Banska Stiernica and the Kremnitzas of these places to create the mining, to exploit the mines. The people, the wealth, the Slovakia that we often refer to as being the real Slovakia is in fact Germanic. Mm -hmm. And then you have, of course, the Hungarian aspect of it. Mm -hmm. So I sort of think that this whole construct of, you know, now Slovansko only live Slovaks. Well, you know what? I think we should do a compulsory DNA testing to find who the only Slovaks are, because I'm not mm -hmm. sure you'd find many of them. I mean, my, my own wife's parent, my own wife, his surname is Polish. Yes. And they, he came from what? Spisko Nova with a Polish name. Is the woman he married is from Oshadnica, which is basically on the Polish border, beyond beyond Zielina. So I mean, you know, you tell me who who? I mean, yes, they may be. Uh, they're all Slavs, but who are the Slovaks? Truly. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, yes, the, the people who identify as Slovaks because they speak a language. But is that is that it? Because in which case, it's actually in a way rather depressing because this population of, what, 6 million, 10% gypsies, 15% Hungarian speakers. Yeah, so both of those speak Slovak as a second language. Mm -hmm. Then you have the Ruthenians and the, the, the dialectical difference. You've got the people that, who are north of the Karpati, who are speaking more Moravian Czech. I mean, so hands on heart, who are the Slovaks? Can the real Slovaks stand up? So why can't, you know, it, it's uh, Slovakia, I think, is it's a geographical construct, the Karpati to the north the Danube to the south, or the Va, as it was historically, because that's where the Hungarian border essentially was. Mm -hmm. 
So it's a geographical construct. And within it is a mixture of people. I mean, sorry, I even forgot about the Croats, the Croat villages surrounding mm -hmm. Bratislava, et cetera, et cetera, and into Burgenland. So, you know, this notion, I mean, it seems to me that Slovakia in a way should be embracing the plurality as opposed to the, the contrary, which is, I find a bit sad for a, for a very small country, uh, a beautiful country, a country that I view as my home and which I'm, you know, would say to anybody, come, please come, you'll have a great time. And if you can get, if you can get the opportunity to come and live and work here, you know, go for it. You won't regret it. I'm, of that, I'm absolutely certain. I agree. Hundred <laughs> percent. Um, well, so I, I think uh, we're done. I think that was the that was the update. Yeah, let's let's uh, let's put a fork <laughs> in it. And um, I just wanted to uh, say thank you very much. Oh, I um, want to say thank you too. I want to say thank you too in that respect. I want to say thank you very much to yourself, your kind self, for inviting me on. Um, and I'm happy to talk to you, or indeed anyone else who is interested in my views as long as they're not too controversial. But I'd also at this juncture like to thank all the people who have helped me over the years and to give a sort of klobuk dole to the younger generations, the ones that are now the leaders who I met for the first time back in the 90s and to the generation of my children. And in that regards, to put a plug in for my daughter, Gigi, and ask everybody to check her out on um, Spotify and YouTube and Instagram and see whether you like a, a lyrical and vocal voice that is both Slovak, but singing in English. Hugo is talking about his daughter, Gigi Ann. She is a very talented young musician. If you are interested in R&B and New Soul, I encourage you to have a listen. I'll link to her work in the show description. Please join me again in a couple of weeks for a new full episode. Thanks for listening and take care. <laughs>